This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. Instead, their main purpose of doing this is to undermine the great progress that has been made in the ongoing liberation and resistance. That's uh, Mohamed Ibrahim Mualimu, a member of Somalia's federal parliament on the double car bombs today. Details coming up. Also, Mali's security ministry says armed men attacked a civil defense post in a rare assault near the capital. And Mozambique is officially a member of the UN Security Council. And all these stories and more on African News Tonight. Our top story, Somali authorities say two bombings targeting officials have killed at least 15 people today at the central Hiran region. Mohamed Daisen reports from Mogadishu, Somalia. The double suicide attack took place in the town of Mahas early Wednesday morning. Mahas is a town in Hiran region about 300 kilometers north of the capital Mogadishu. Mohamed Mohamed Halane. The mayor of the town, who spoke to state-run television, said the attacks consisted of two car bomb blasts targeting his house and the residence of a member of the federal parliament, Mohammed Abukar Jafar. He said the attacks resulted in multiple casualties. He said the anti-beast terrorists have attacked the town this morning with two car explosions. One blast occurred in front of my house, and there are deaths and injuries. Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab claimed responsibility for the attack. The group said the attacks targeted the main government base in Mahas. Local residents who talked to VOA by phone described the attack as one of the biggest explosions they have ever had. The attack triggered condemnation from local and national government officials. Mohamed Ibrahim Walimu is a member of the federal parliament elected from the region. He told VOA by phone that the attack Wednesday shows that the enemy, meaning Al-Shabaab militants, has given up and are reduced to carrying out only bomb attacks. He said their main purpose of doing this is to undermine the great progress that has been made in the ongoing liberation and recent victories. I sent my condolences to victims and wish the injured people a quick recovery. He called on the public to continue working with the army until Al-Shabaab is defeated. Somali government forces backed by local clan militias have recently liberated large swaths of territories, mainly in the state of Hirshabele, from Islamist group which has battled the government and African Union peacekeepers in Somalia since 2007. Somali President Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud declared an all-out war against the militants last year. Al-Shabaab has since carried out daily bombings in the capital Mogadishu, including a double attack on Somalia's education ministry that killed more than 100 people, mostly civilians. Mohamed Daisane, VOA News, 
Mogadishu, Somalia. Nigerian authorities say a car bomb killed four security officials in the country's troubled southeast yesterday. The Associated Press says the ambush targeted a convoy carrying former Imo State Governor Ikidi Ohakim, who was traveling with two of his children in a different car than the victim, uh, than the victims and survived. The dead, the dead include three police officers and a paramilitary official. According to the Nigerian web pepper, paper, the Daily Post, Ohakim said he was the target of the attack but survived because his vehicle had special tires which allow a vehicle to continue even with punctures. Southeastern Nigeria has experienced a number of attacks in recent years blamed on the separatist group, the indigenous people of Biafra. Observers say the violence could threaten security in the area during presidential elections come February. The U.S. House of Representatives failed to choose the next Speaker of the House Tuesday as a group of conservative U.S. lawmakers continued to vote against fellow Republican Kevin McCarthy's bid to lead the 118th session of Congress. VOA's congressional correspondent Catherine Gibson has more. For the first time in 100 years, U.S. lawmakers in the House of Representatives have not elected a Speaker of the House in one round of voting, despite Republicans winning the majority. Republican Representative Elise Stefanik. The people across this great nation spoke loudly and clearly that they wanted a new direction. They wanted a new direction to stop this radical far-left agenda, to hold Joe Biden accountable, and to save the United States of America. After three rounds and several hours of voting, Republican leader Kevin McCarthy still could not command the 218 votes, a simple majority of the 434 members of the U.S. House needed to be elected. Republicans hold a narrow lead in the incoming U.S. House of Representatives, meaning McCarthy can lose only four votes and still be elected as Speaker. As many as 20 conservative Republicans objected to his candidacy. Republican Representative Scott Perry. The guy that wants to be Speaker agrees that Washington is broken. Washington, and, and he said as much in one of his most recent correspondences. Interestingly enough, over the 14 years that he's been in leadership, he's done almost virtually nothing to change it. And instead voted for conservative Republican Jim Jordan. All 212 House Democrats voted for incoming Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries to serve as Speaker of the House. But with Jeffries and McCarthy unable to command 218 votes, it appears a compromise candidate must emerge. Catherine Gibson, VOA News, Capitol Hill. As we just heard, members of the U.S. House of Representatives today are trying to select a new Speaker of the House. VOA Capitol Hill correspondent Catherine Gibson joins us now to give us some background on what is happening. Welcome to African News Tonight, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. So for our international audiences, could you please explain the Speaker's role and why this vote is important? That's right. You know, the U.S. Speaker of the House is one of the most important government officials in the United States because they control the U.S. House of Representatives, one of the two chambers of the U.S. Congress. 
They're also second in line in the order of presidential succession. So if anything happens to the U.S. president or the vice president, the Speaker of the House then becomes the president of the United States. So it's a position that comes with a great deal of power and influence, and that's why we're seeing such a protracted, intense battle over who serves in that position. So today, uh, does it appear that any positions are shifting in Congress or whether a compromise candidate might appear? Well, that is absolutely the key question here in the nation's capital today. We haven't seen anything like this in a hundred years. Usually the speaker vote is a set deal. Everybody votes for the same candidate. It only takes one round of voting. We're really in uncharted territory here. And from all reports overnight, there hasn't been a lot of movement. What everybody here in Washington is speculating about is that a so-called compromise candidate may emerge. Somebody who's not the Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, or Hakeem Jeffries on the Democratic side, who we know will not be able to get any Republican votes, but someone that can appeal to all sides on the Republican side. And that's really what they need to be doing. Steve Scalise, who is part of the Republican leadership already, may emerge as one of those candidates. And remember, we also have Jim Jordan, who got 20 votes yesterday from some of those conservative Republicans. So it's really anybody's guess how all of this is going to play out today. And finally, the bigger picture, what are the implications for the U.S. government if this process drags out further? Well, the implications are immediate. You have new representatives, new members, congressional members, who cannot even be sworn in until there's a Speaker of the House. Remember, the U.S. Speaker of the House administers that oath of office to members of Congress. Until a new Congress can be sworn in, they can't pass any laws. They can't set up committees to handle legislation. They literally cannot do anything. They are in a stalemate until this U.S. Speaker of the House is chosen. And one branch of the U.S. government basically is just not functioning until they make that decision. VOA Capitol Hill correspondent Catherine Gibson, thank you for your input. You're so welcome. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Spanish police have broken up a criminal group that smuggled over 5,000 tons of hazardous electronic waste from Spain's Canary Islands to several African countries. Police arrested 43 people suspected of having illegally shipped 331 containers of used electronics to Africa over the past two years, according to a finance ministry statement. The network allegedly forged custom documents for the exported waste to make it seem that the containers held second-hand goods. The operation was valued at over 1.5 million euros. Mali's security ministry says armed men attacked a civil defense post in a rare attack near the capital Monday, killing five people. Annie Rasenberg reports from Bamako, Mali. Mali's security ministry said unidentified armed individuals attacked the defense post Monday night in the small southwest town of Marka Kungo, about 80 kilometers from the capital, Bamako. In a statement Tuesday, the ministry said two members of the civil defense force and three civilians were killed in the attack. It said Mali's security forces were taking all measures to identify and arrest the attackers, 
and called on the public to collaborate with security forces. So far, no group has claimed responsibility for the Monday attack. Marka Kungo lies on the main road northeast of Bamako, an area that rarely sees such attacks. Violence in Mali's decade-long conflict with Islamist militants has been mostly in the north and center of the country, though attacks in the south are increasing. Six people were killed in a July attack on a checkpoint 70 kilometers from Bamako, followed by an attack one week later on Mali's main military camp, just 15 kilometers from the capital. One soldier was killed in the attack, which al-Qaeda's affiliate in Mali called a response to the military government's working with Russian mercenaries and claimed responsibility for the attack. Mali has been under military rule since a coup in August 2020. Mali's military government has denied working with the Wagner Group, a private Russian military company with links to the Kremlin, saying it only works with official Russian instructors. French troops, which were helping fight Islamist militants in northern Mali since 2013, withdrew last year over concerns about Mali's work with the Wagner Group. UN experts have accused the mercenaries of gross rights abuses in countries where they operate, such as the Central African Republic, Libya, Sudan, Syria, and Ukraine. The UN peacekeeping mission in Mali, MINUSMA, has also been in the country since 2013, but has faced difficulties since the military government came to power. Several participating countries have suspended their involvement in the mission, including Britain and Ivory Coast. Mali in July detained 46 Ivorian troops and accused them of being mercenaries. Ivory Coast says they were working under the peacekeeping mission. A Malian court on Friday sentenced the soldiers to 20 years in prison over an alleged coup attempt. Three women Ivorian peacekeepers initially arrested along with the rest of the troops when they arrived in Bamako airport on July 10th were later released. West African leaders set a January 1st deadline for Mali to release the Ivorian troops or face sanctions. Annie Reisenberg for VOA News, Bamako, Mali. The streets of Tunis came to a standstill last Monday as public transport workers walked off their jobs to protest delays in payment. The birthplace of the Arab Spring, Tunisia, has been mired in political divisions and economic upheaval since President Kais Saeed staged a dramatic power grab in July 2021. The country is grappling with a grinding economic and political crisis. Intasir Fakir, Fakir, a senior fellow and director of Middle East Institute's North Africa and Sahel program, tells me Saeed's actions represent a major test for Tunisia's young democracy. Yes, so it's, as you mentioned, it's a political crisis that is now coming on top of a economic crisis that has been going on for several years, sort of a slow, uh, brewing economic crisis. We have really been seeing this for a while, essentially both of these things um, coming together to really form this remarkable you know, storm for the population where the economy is just in, a, in, a, in an untenable situation. And what makes it even much more um, difficult to negotiate a solution um, for the ongoing economic crisis is essentially the political situation. <laughs> yes, yes. But but let's talk about the politics here and the, the yeah. election. The people of Tunisia empowered President Kais Saeed into that position. They, so uh, Correct, they did. Um, if you remember in 2019 when he was elected, um, it was a, a bit of a shock to this to sort of, you know, the international, I think most of the international community was a little bit shocked. I think a lot of Tunisians themselves were a little bit caught off guard. But I think overall, there was this sense that 
you know, this is a different man. Uh, the perception is that he is not corrupted the way he is not sort of a politician, the way that Tunisians have been used to politicians ever since, particularly ever since the revolution began in the country um, in 2011. And there was this this idea that maybe bringing someone who's a bit neutral, who has this sort of unvarnished reputation, um, can 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 help bring a little bit of a, a breath of fresh air to political situation. So when Qais Saeed showed up um, in July of 2021 and essentially said, "I'm going to suspend the constitution. I'm going to really uh, I'm going to suspend parliament." At this point, he had not suspended the constitution just yet. He said, you know, I'm going to suspend parliament and I'm going to sort of take the country in a different direction. There was a lot of optimism um, around what he had done. And there was a lot of hope that there was going to be some kind of, um, you know, some kind of effectiveness, some kind of, you know, uh, dynamism in, in how the country is managed. And that's not really proven to be the case. Uh, in fact, what we have seen over the years is a man who is just very gradually changing the entire political structure and uh, of the country from a kind of a hybrid you know parliamentary system and presidential system to a very uh, presidential system where power is entirely concentrated in his hands he has stripped power from every other um, you know institution public institution and concentrated powers in, in his hand but he did so without really addressing any of the major um, economic challenges, economic issues within the country. And so what we are seeing right now is that a a concentration of political power in the hands of one man who is not really fully equipped to address the country's economic and frankly even political issues you are telling me now it started out with a breath of fresh air and now it's turning to be a little toxic yeah extremely toxic and it's very difficult to sort of really to be optimistic about tunisia at the moment right now because you know the country again is dealing with this economic crisis that's been in the making and that's really been there for for many years fast forward to the fall where you really have uh, more and more the country, you know, basically strapped for cash, not really having enough money on hand to pay for basic services, to pay for imports of food, to cover public sector salaries and such. And you have the government in what seems to be a, a positive uh, development. Um, you have the government sort of negotiated a staff agreement, a staff level agreement with the IMF to implement certain austerity measures. Of course, the big question about a deal like this was, is everybody within the political class in Tunisia standing behind this deal? And when I say is everybody within the political class in Tunisia, here what I'm referring to specifically is the powerful labor unions. Are the powerful labor unions going to stand behind this deal? Are they going to allow for the implementation of this deal? That was uh, Intasir Fakir, director of the Middle East Institute's North Africa and Sahel program. She spoke with me from Washington, D.C. International football legend Pele, laid to rest yesterday in Santos, Brazil, was loved in South Africa. As Darren Taylor reports, Pele made many friends during numerous visits to South Africa after apartheid ended in 1994. <laughs> 
Augusto Palacios says he fell in love with football and with Pelé when he watched him score a hat-trick against France in the 1958 World Cup semi-final. His eight-year-old eyes gazed at the TV screen in awe as the 17-year-old Brazilian tormented the French. Pelé's team would go on to beat Sweden in the final, with Palacios later finding a place in the midfield of Peru's national team. In 1973, I had the opportunity to play against him. And obvious, I met him obvious in Argentina. In Buenos Aires, also I met him in, when I was the team manager Mafana Afana in the World Cup in France. And also, also in Confederation. Palacios was 21 when he lined up for his Peruvian club, Sporting Cristal, against Pele's Brazilian side, Santos, in a Copa Libertadores fixture. The Copa Libertadores is South America's equivalent of the African Champions League. Palacios says he was surprised by Pele's relatively small stature. His height was 1.73, but the way he jumped over the ball, looking at the goal he scored in 1970 against Italy, the heading goal, it was unbelievable. The body aspect, the strong with the ball to protect the ball in the dribbling, unbelievable. And remember also... He laughs and says he couldn't touch Pele on the field and had to make do with handshakes and backslaps off the pitch. His background is, is unbelievable. He never lost this passion or humble aspect from where he came because he came from very, very poor family. He was a very, very poor person, you know, who was selling a newspaper and magazine and clean shoes in the street. Age of 13 years is when... According to the Peruvian, it says a lot about the kind of person Pele was that he chose to remain loyal to Santos rather than moving to a top European club. One can only imagine, says Palacios, what Pele could have achieved with Real Madrid, for example. Yet, says Palacios, Pele's name still became synonymous with the beautiful game, and he won every trophy he ever competed for. Five Copa Libertadores, two Intercontinental Cup, three World Cup, top goal scorer, 1,000, 2,000 goal. He was my hero. I can't copy him, but I can enjoy watching him. Another South African footballing personality who interacted with Pele is Kaiser Motohong, the founder of top club side Kaiser Chiefs. In 1968, Motong was playing as a 24-year-old striker for Atlanta Chiefs in the United States. Santos drove hard against the Chiefs to keep their lead. Paley, number 10, maintained his standing as the world's number one player. Grainy archive footage shows Pele bursting through the Chiefs' defense to smash the ball into the net past an onrushing goalkeeper. Motong says he remembers almost every second of the game. The occasion itself was unbelievable because uh, we knew that uh, we're not only playing against a team called Santos, we're playing against the greatest of all time. He says the tens of thousands of fans in the stadium had obviously come to see Pele, and Pele only, and that was just fine by him. They beat us 6-2, and he scored about three goals. I must say I was very happy because I also scored one goal in that game. As a football administrator, Motong met Pele on many occasions, especially during the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. He was an unbelievable character, on and off the field. But off the field, 
was such a humble person. You would not believe that uh, he was a top athlete throughout the world and somebody who was seen as the best in the whole world. Motong says of all the famous political figures, musicians, authors and sports people he's met, Pele remains the only one he places on the same pedestal as Mandela, a global icon, but with the humanity and humility to make everyone around him feel significant. I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. And that wraps up this edition of Africa News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Patrick Deya, thanks for choosing the Voice of America. 